this moment will never come again. I know it because it has never been before. That's a great lyric from a Victoria Williams song. Let me tell you a brief story about a wasted moment. Um, Thinking of today and the snowstorm and the ambiguity of whether it be safe to come or not, and so the Lord has gathered this crowd. We are here today. It reminded me of a time when my brother, my younger brother, was going through boot camp with the Army, and they kept their days so um, filled up with responsibilities beginning at 4 a.m. So that he had no free time throughout boot camp, except that they allowed for a two-hour block of time on Wednesday evening. So that was the only free time all week long. And he happened to notice that there was a Bible study meeting at the chapel on base. He was in Fayetteville, North Carolina at the time. And uh, uh, Officers Christian Fellowship Bible study, 7 p.m., Wednesday night, and that was right there, the only free time he had all week. So after this grueling, excruciating period of weeks, he, he shows up for, to this chapel and he goes up and the door's locked. So he doesn't know what else to do, so he sits on the front steps there. And within a few minutes, another, an army officer came. And he also went up and the door was locked. And so he joined my brother on the, on the steps there. And they made some small talk for a couple of minutes. And then when it began, when it turned about five or ten minutes after, the army captain looked at his watch and said, hmm, guess no one's coming. And he got up and left walked away, this missed opportunity to actually be the body of Christ for my brother, this missed opportunity to be the very presence of God himself in in a time where my brother would have been very glad for the encouragement. So you all have not done that. You've not missed the opportunity. You're here today. You're the body of Christ in a, a, a profoundly beautiful moment in your life. Now, why do we say that? Because Victoria Williams tells us the truth. This moment has never been before, and it will never come again. We often confess the Apostles' Creed in the life of the church. And when you do that, you remember that this is a time where Christians proclaim and confess and declare out loud with our tongues the things we know to be true in a summary fashion. And so we confess things that we believe to be true about what Christ has done for us in the past. He was crucified. He was conceived of the Virgin Mary, uh, um, born under Pontius Pilate, crucified, died, and was buried. We confess things that we believe will be true in the future. Jesus is coming again judge, the quick and the dead. So we're confessing things that we believe he has done, things we believe by faith he will do, but what parts of the Apostles' Creed are in the present tense, the things that we are confessing about Jesus right now, in this moment? And to, it's not the summary of everything he's doing right now, but in the Apostles' Creed, it refers to to this profound reality of 
Anabino, the title for the sermon, the title of the amazing work of art we've got behind us. It refers to Christ ascending to the Father's right hand and right now ruling from the right hand, from the throne. So right now in the present, in this profound moment, we don't believe that Christ is still on the cross. We don't believe that he's still walking in uh, the ancient Near East healing. We don't believe that he's already returned. By the way, that's how weird offshoots of the faith get started over the years. Is People say, read the New Testament. It says that Jesus is going to come again. Guess what? I'm him. And that's how... The Swedenborgians, for one thing, I just remember that was, they were, sorry, I get off on these tangents because they cut all of our trees down. That's their tree-cutting business. But the Swedenborgians, anyway. You get into trouble. You start, like, forming weird offshoots that become cult-like if you're believing things about what Jesus will do in the future have already happened. You get into all sorts of trouble in your faith if you believe things he already has done haven't yet happened. And so living right now in this moment, aware of the things that have happened, are now happening and will happen by faith, this is the healthy life. So we saw in our text this moment where Jesus speaks this word to Mary in her despair and her confusion and That in the Greek, this is where we get the title for the sermon, this word, anabino. I'm going to pray for us now for the rest of the sermon. Um, and But just I'm just going to encourage you. One of my professors wrote a book, uh, Pray With Your Eyes Open. Uh, feel free to just not close your eyes while I pray, but instead just look at the work of art that was created to somehow encapsulate and portray the beauty of this word when Jesus says, Anabino, I am ascending. Let me pray. I'm going to close my eyes, but you can watch. Lord, you are the ascended one now, and we know that from the throne you speak. You are speaking to us through all that we've been enjoying together of your presence already in this worship service. And so we pray for your power to speak to each of our hearts, and to us corporately as a body of yours. Right now, in this moment, preparing us for all moments yet to come. By your grace and power, in your name we pray. Amen. The first sermon I ever preached was a sermon called um, Donut Hole Theology. Now, that was back in the last century, uh, by the way, but... um, uh, literally, um, and it was taken from this phrase one of my one of my professors used, where he talked about, and I just so identified with this. I just think of myself this way, kind of to this day. He he talked about this this um, how he himself had grown up in the church, and so he just had a solid faith about the historic reality of these things the church claims Jesus did. He just never really doubted those, and I 
myself, that's been my experience, believing that Christ really was crucified and buried and raised again on the third day. This solid faith in what Christ has done and a solid faith in what he's promising to do. All really will be made right one day. But what about right now? Donut hole theology, this emptiness, this um, uncertainty and confusion and despair that so often characterizes our lives and characterizes just a four o'clock on a Tuesday afternoon. Well, think for a moment about the this particular moment that our sermon text was about. Um, around Easter, we often read these great texts around the resurrection, and this is one of those texts. Mary has visited the tomb, and it picks up um, in mid-story, and she's weeping by the tomb. Um, she's in despair. She's lost the Savior. She's lost this one who did miracles, this one who showed amazing love and wisdom, strength and passion, and she's lost him. And she and it, and it wasn't just like some ter- terrible accident where he fell off a cliff or something. It was a horrific crucifixion at the hands of uh, uh, occupying fascist power. And, and they didn't show the dignity of taking their their victims into hiding somewhere and crucifying them there, but it was this very public display. It was just a, it was um, traumatic. Mary has been traumatized and she's in despair and she goes to this tomb and she sees it's empty and that's just not good news. That's just more news of something horrible that's happened. Now they've even taken her body and it's, she's confused, she's in despair and then Jesus appears. She's still confused. She doesn't recognize him at first. But he speaks this word to her. Let me read that just those, those verses again one more time. This is this is after he has he has now spoken her name. And that, that just gives light to her eyes, and she now recognizes him. And she calls him Rabbani. And the text doesn't explicitly say, but it certainly is implying that, that when she recognizes him, she reaches out for him to embrace him, to cling to him, because then Jesus says, do not cling to me. And so there's this recognition, and there's this joyful affection and an embrace But Jesus says to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. So here's what I'd like us to see this afternoon, these so many profound implications of that simple word, anabino, I am ascending. But I'd like us to see three implications in particular today. Now, first of all, this isn't one of the three, but just I, I was... Communication is hard sometimes. And I, I know I, I confused some folks in the earlier sermon uh, just by tenses and past, present, and future and all sorts of things. In this text, which happened in a particular moment in time, Jesus is referring to an ascent, an ascension yet to happen. 
But then we know that from the book of Acts that he did ascend. So now in 2017, we refer to a Jesus who's no longer needing to ascend. So I was using the present tense, I am ascending, I am ascending. And that confuses some people. I thought he was already ascended. And that, well, yes, yes, but just, you know, poetic license going back and forth. We now know he is ascended, and that's this remarkable good news. He's promising it to her there. It has now happened. And so we now have an already ascended Jesus, and that has a a million implications, but here's three for us today. Here's the first one, is that this, he is saying this word to her. He is saying to her, you are loved and redeemed. And now through this text, this is what Jesus is saying to us today, to his church today. You are a loved and redeemed people, and all pressure is off. This is the first thing he's getting at with this glorious good news that he is ascending to the Father's right hand. He had already said earlier in John, John 14, He'd already given them the heads up that he was going to be crucified, but he was, that's, it wasn't going to end there. He was going to be raised again, and then he was going to ascend. He'd already given them the, the plot. And so in John 14, he had said, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And so when he's saying to her now, Anabino, he's not taking it back and saying, I actually... I am, I am abandoning you. I changed my mind, and sorry. No, no, he's saying the ascension is the means by which I will never have to abandon you again. So think about it this way, in this weird sort of Star Trek parallel universe idea. What if theoretically this resurrected Jesus, she's clinging to him, and he says to her, yeah, keep on embracing me. I'm not going anywhere. I'm not planning on ascending. And so, if that were the case, what would our job be today in 2017? What would Craig's job be if our desire is for ourselves and people we know and love to come into contact with Jesus? In this weird sort of Star Trek parallel universe, what we'd have to do today is just ask Craig to please, like, charter a plane or something and fly us over to the Mideast or wherever Jesus is on this particular day. Maybe he's in South America right now. We don't know. But find out where he is. We need to be where Jesus is. That's where he is. And while we're on board the flight, also help teach us Aramaic or Greek or Hebrew, whatever he's going to be speaking that day. That would be the means by which you'd be near Jesus and get people near Jesus in this weird parallel universe. But he says, no, no, the means by which I will never have to leave you is the ascension. Because by taking the Father's seat at the Father's right hand, from there I send my spirit, I am with you always. I'm not leaving you, I'm not abandoning you, I'm not leaving you as orphans. I will come to you by my spirit. He really is present. He would have been present on that Wednesday evening 30 years ago or so at boot camp if that army captain had stuck around and been with my brother and the two of them had just prayed together wherever two or three are gathered. And he's with us today. He's with us every Lord's Day gathering. He's with us whenever Christians gather. 
precisely because Anabino, precisely because he didn't stay around in his corporal body, but now who becomes the body? You and I do. We do. So, Anabino, the pressure is off. By this, Jesus is saying, I'm taking my seat on the throne. I wouldn't be doing that if the work weren't completed. I wouldn't be doing that if the work weren't completed. There's this parallel passage in the book of Hebrews that makes this point as well, and it refers to the foreshadowings of Christ in the Old Testament, the Old Testament priests. And in Hebrews it says, every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But in contrast, when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God this connection between his completing his work, now signified precisely by not hanging around on earth, but the ascension, sitting down at the Father's right hand. That signifies his work is complete. Again, imagine it this way in in sort of a weird parallel universe. Creative thinking exercise here, but Jesus says to her, "You, you may cling to me, I have done some work, but not all the work. And I've absolved you of your sin. Your sin is white like snow. But like Kevin Nelson was saying in the earlier service, like this snow is really beautiful, an incredible symbol of absolution from sin today. But it won't be tomorrow. Tomorrow's going to be all grimy and gray and, you know, slushy and, you know. So Jesus says to her, I've absolved you moment. For the moment. I've absolved you. It's good right now. But as soon as I put a period on the end of the sentence, guess what? Get busy absolving yourself again. Don't worry. I'll, I'll help. I'll go back to the cross or something. I'll keep doing this thing over and over and over again. It's not done. You're not truly forgiven yet. One of the most remarkable verses in First John talks about the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. But in this weird parallel universe, Jesus says, I did some of it, not quite done. The rest is up to you. You've got to destroy the works of the devil. So, do you want that burden? Do you want this pressure? No, no. Jesus says, Anabino. This is such good news. By that, he's referring, he's He's referencing us to the completed work. That if he's seated at the right hand of the Father, if he's ascended, it is indeed finished. There's this silly joke that I've told of so many times, but it's about these two friends, and the one friend sees the other friend after a couple dozen years or so. And the first friend sees the second friend coming and just doesn't recognize him. And he says to him, like, who are you? I, I, I mean, I know, I know you're, you're my friend, but... but when I used to know you, you were covered, covered with like worry lines. Your face was just marked with anxiety and stress all the time. You never looked people in the eye. You were just constantly mumbling to yourself. You were just overwhelmed with despair and worry. And now look at you. You're like the light of the day. You're, you're just walking. You've got pep to your step. You're just happy. 
what happened? And the second friend says, well, it's the most remarkable thing. I found somebody who will do all my worrying for me. And the first friend says, well, how does that work? I'd like... And he says, well, it's pretty simple. I pay him a million dollars a day, and he does all my worrying for me. And the friend says, where do you get that money? And then, of course, he says, that's his worry. That's his worry. Jesus comes and he says, let the worry of being made right with God be completely off your shoulders and completely on mine. Let the worry of securing eternal life. We're all going to die. We're fairly young in this room, but let the worry of that be completely off your shoulders. Let the worry of destroying the works of the devil conquering death itself be completely off your shoulders. So that's what Anabino, his first implication I wanted us to see. This beautiful moment where one of the ancient saints just, just enters the culture. All will be well, all will be well, and all manner of things will be well. It's Julian in the 14th century. All will be well, all will be well. This is what Jesus is saying and all manner of things will be well. But here's a second implication. When he says anabino to Mary and now to us today, he is saying all pressure is off. He's saying you're loved and redeemed, but he's also saying you are actually greatly needed and necessary. All pressure is off, but guess what? The good news, I want you, Mary, to be the one to go and tell my disciples. He theoretically could have kept that to himself as his own prerogative. Like, I'm telling you the good news, Mary, that I'm ascending, but keep it to yourself. I want to be the one to break that good news to my... No, he says, you go tell her. And then later he makes that, that that's just, not just this like one moment in time thing, but he, in the very next scene, which we didn't read, but in, in the book of John, he makes that pattern clear, where he says, as the Father has sent me, so now I send you. And that's, the, that's when he's speaking to his church. That this is the message, that anabino also means that you are the ones that are now going to be the body of Christ. You're greatly needed and necessary. There's, um, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, I'm just sort of trying to backtrack and, and wonder, but but um, there, there's the simple phrase that's being used as a marketing tool now, um, rise up. Have you seen this lately in the culture? Okay. So I'm a big, like, Walking Dead fan, and so the next season premieres tonight, and that's, that's the tagline is rise up. And one of the Super Bowl teams last week that played last week, that was their team motto, was rise up. And I'm backtracking. I think that must have, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that must have come from Hamilton, and the, that song in the, in, the, in the Broadway musical. And anyway, rise up. Rise up. This, this call to, to make something out of nothing. And in the Hamilton musical, that's part of the tension of it, is after the revolution, then what? After the resurrection, as it were, then what? Now we've got to build a new nation. And so this is Jesus saying, Anabino is what comes next. 
rise up, the resurrection has happened. But now what comes next is, I'm sending you out as my hands and feet, my tongue, my body, my flesh. People will meet me in this world only when they meet you. Now, there are certainly exceptions. We never put God in a box. Our confession talks about there's no, it doesn't happen ordinarily. And so I'm just going to use a bit of hyperbole and say it just doesn't happen very often at all for people to meet Jesus unless they meet his church, unless they meet you. Absolutely needed and necessary. My favorite author in all the world, a, a winner of the National Book Award, compatriot of uh, Flannery O'Connor, but his name was Walker Percy. And um, in his greatest novel, I think, uh, Love in the Ruins, just I wanted to read this little section. He's, Love in the Ruins takes place in, in, the, in the future when America is just falling apart. He wrote this in the 1970s. The main character in this part is reflecting back on how his own marriage just fell apart just fell apart. And he's reflecting back on why that happened. And he actually traces it to this idea that his wife never understood why he would ever go to church. So interesting. So here's, here's this, this section. He, he talks about in their, that he's reflecting back on the early days of their marriage when they were happy and they'd take these road trips together. And so he says, but Sunday mornings I would leave her and go to church. Now, here was the strangest exercise of all, leaving the coordinate of the motel at the intersection of the interstates, leaving the motel with its standard doors and carpets and plumbing, leaving the interstates extending infinitely in all directions, abscissa and ordinate, descending through a random moonscaped countryside to a town where people had been living all these years and to some forlorn little church up a side street just in time for the 10 o'clock service stepping up on the porch as if I'd been doing it every year for 20 years, and here comes the stove-up, bemused priest with his cup and his book. What am I doing here, says his day's expression. Upon whose head hands had been laid, and upon this other head other hands, and so on and so on. For here off of Interstate 51, I touched the thread in the labyrinth. And the priest announced the turkey raffle and Wednesday bingo and preached the gospel and fed me Christ. And then back to the motel I would go, exhilarated. By what? By eating Christ? Or by the secret discovery of the singular thread? In this, the unlikeliest of places, this geometry of holiday inns and interstates, back to lie with my wife Doris, all rosy-fleshed and creased of cheek, cracking one eye and opening her arms and smiling towards me. My God, what is it that you even do in church? What she never understood, she being spiritual, and seeing religion as spirit was that it took religion to save me from the spirit world, from orbiting the earth like Lucifer and the angels, that it took nothing less than touching the thread off the misty interstates and eating Christ himself to make me mortal man again and let me inhabit my own flesh and love her in the morning. So this is a remarkable passage, and Percy makes powerful use of, I had to like check Wikipedia or whatever, but you know this this Greek mythology, this picture of the thread in the labyrinth, 
And the Minotaur in Greek mythology, you know, trapped people in this terrifying maze, this terrifying labyrinth, and the only way one of the girls could get out was by a thread so that she could track her way back out. And so Percy makes brilliant use of this image. And I, I don't want to exegete his book now instead of our passage, but this is, this is what Jesus is saying here. Is the only, I'm ascending. The only way I will be found now is through my church. And wherever my church is found, guess what's found there? I'm found there. The singular thread in this crazy, confusing world. This maze of a world. I mean, who has it figured out? Who has it figured out? Percy also talks about this, this, the, the girl who um, aced every class but failed at life. Who didn't know what to do at 4 o'clock on a Tuesday afternoon. Who just didn't know. This world is a terrifyingly crazy place. And we would get lost and trapped, and countless millions do, and never find their way out. saves through the singular thread that can be found in any random town where people gather in the name of Christ. That's what this church is here for. That's what this congregation of this church is here for. That's why we partner and team up with this church being in partnership with churches everywhere to weave the thread through the other part of the labyrinth where it hasn't reached that part. And so Jesus says, Anabino means all pressure is off. I really, taking the seat means I'm done. I finished this glorious work that needed to be done. All the past things are indeed past. That's glorious news. But now in the present, you are my hands and feet. You are needed, absolutely needed and necessary. And then finally, but I'm not just sending you out as my hands and feet, as my mouth, as my body. I am also, Anabino means, I am also, the implication means, I am also empowering you by my Holy Spirit. That is a direct connection in the scriptures that he is not just going to be seated on the throne and then random things might happen next or maybe nothing will happen next. No, it's very clear in the scriptures that the seating on the throne means now the Spirit is sent. In fact, the very next scene, which in John, which again we didn't read, but he breathes on the disciples, and he says, receive my Holy Spirit. And it's this foreshadowing of the Holy Spirit coming in great power on the day of Pentecost, just 40 days later. And so anabino means, and I hope this is one of the things that, uh, and again, you're, it's, it's, to, it's excellent if you're looking past me at the, the work of art. This is one of the things that most people get from it, right, is that this is it's something of a portrayal of the spiritual presence, the Holy Spirit, these tongues of fire that's rising up, this, this Pentecost. It's all, it all Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all in there somewhere. And so we are an empowered people. This is this remarkable good news that actually 4 o'clock on a Tuesday afternoon when we are confused and dazed by life, we can tap in to this knowledge, this awareness that we have been given the Holy Spirit. We've been endowed with the riches of all the power of God. Now, 
this is what each week's worship service is for. Each week's worship service is is for empowering. There's actually a, a, a service really focused on that coming up Thursday night, the healing service, where there's particular areas in our lives where we need the power of God focused very particularly. But every worship service is a service of empowerment and healing where we're asking the Holy Spirit to make us bigger and better versions of ourselves that go beyond anything we could do for ourselves. Think of it this way. Eugene Peterson describes, he he defines the self. He just, sort of a simple definition, but he says the self is the soul without God. And so who are you apart from the influence of God in your life? You know, the the incredibly good news is just how bad the bad news is. The scriptures talk about our fallen selves, our natural selves, and they use language that's extreme, like Genesis 6, where it talks about every, apart from God, every intention of the thoughts of our heart is only evil continually. That's the direct quote in Genesis 6, 5. So, That's such good news, because what that means is whenever you tap into any evidence of kindness that emanated from you, (laughs) patience that emanated from you, long-suffering, courage, tenderness, peace, that means God was present. God was the one giving you this supernatural presence because in and of yourselves, if the self is the soul without God, your soul tends towards impatience, not patience. Tends towards hatred, not love. This is the self without God. And so the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit, he is actually far more present in our lives than we often realize. We take for granted that in that moment, yeah, I, I held my tongue when I could have bit that person's head off. But that's just what people do. People, you know, mature people learn. No, no, God taught you that. Because in and of yourselves, you would have bit his head off. Or you take for granted that, like, um, I mean, this is a silly little thing, but my, my daughter, I was having coffee with my daughter when she was in high school a few years ago at this coffee shop. And, um, and this person ran in the coffee shop. My car is on fire. It's about to explode. And I literally ran outside, grabbed a fire extinguisher, ran up to the car and put the fire out. And then came back in and kept drinking coffee with my daughter. And my daughter was like, you're like a hero. And I'm, I'm like, what? I just, she, her car was going to explode and I was the closest one to the fire. And she was actually pointing out to me like, no, dad, that was really unusual what you did. That was the Holy Spirit. <laughs> you weren't, that wasn't like you. That was the Holy Spirit. And so, that's true. I, if you told me ahead of time, I would like don't. Like, I wouldn't normally do that. The Holy Spirit is promised, and wherever we, we don't have the time today, but just simply go to one of those texts like Galatians four that contrasts the work of the flesh with, with the work of the Spirit, and whenever you see evidence of patience coming out of you, love, kindness, joy, peace, long suffering, you give 
credit to the grace of God and the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit. And then that just builds even more momentum. Because what you have done is something incredibly profound. Jesus begins his Beatitudes with that very profound division, dividing one person from another. Blessed are the poor in spirit. And one either acknowledges themselves as that, and therefore is regularly empowered by the Holy Spirit, or will not acknowledge themselves as that. And the Spirit wanders somewhere else. He blows like the wind, and he will blow himself somewhere else, away from the hard heart that says, I don't need you. And so there's this regular empowering in every worship service. And we come now to the Lord's Supper, where we're reminded that these historic facts about Christ really did happen. And the supper at the same time is a foreshadowing of something that really is going to happen in the future, the wedding feast of the Lamb. But it is for right now, in this moment, that will never come again and has never been before. Your need, as you bring it to the Lord, you'll find power in his word, in his church, in the supper. Father, how we thank you for the sending of Jesus. And Jesus, how we thank you that as you you rose up, that you kept rising. You ascended to the Father's right hand, and from there now, you are empowering us, your people. You're empowering the humble, not the proud. You're empowering the poor, not the enriched. You're empowering the weak, not the strong, the sick, not the healthy, the sinful, not the righteous. You are empowering the people that say, we need you. We love you. And so we, we do say that right now, Lord. We need you. We love you. 